Glenn Medeiros burst onto the music scene with his debut song, Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You, topping charts around the world, including here in the UK for four weeks a year later. But since then, he's had a bit of a change in career and now he heads up the third oldest school in Hawaii. I'm so pleased he's here today to tell me more about his life after that thing he did. Please welcome Glenn Medeiros. Aloha, Glenn. Aloha. Or should I call you Dr. Glenn um, or, or Mr. President? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you can just call me Glenn. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about, um, about what you're doing now in the second half of the show. But thank you so much for joining me today, especially because, well, it's 6 p.m. here in England. It's 8 a.m. in Hawaii for you. I mean, my brain doesn't even function these days at 8 a.m. <laughs> Have you always been an early riser? I usually get up at about 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning, so it's, uh, it's not a problem. <laughs> How many coffees do you need before you get going? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a coffee person, actually, but uh, I, I just get up early. For some reason, I've always been that way. Wow, that's just, that's crazy. I know Mark Wahlberg gets up at like four o'clock in the morning to start working out before he starts his day. Is that what you're doing at 4am as well? (laughs) I wish I could say that was true for me, but (laughs) maybe that's something I can think about doing in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get down to business and head into the nostalgia zone. So you initially rose to fame after winning a high school talent contest in Hawaii called Brown Bags to Stardom. Mm-hmm. And your prize was to release a single, which was, of course, Nothing's Gonna Change My Love for You. Mm-hmm. But you had to be talked into recording and releasing it, didn't you? Yes, because uh, I wanted to do an original song. The song was previously recorded uh, by George Benson. But the uh, producer at the radio station that I worked at really felt that if I were to record the song again, that I might be able to bring it to a new audience, given that George Benson is such a well-respected artist. Uh, A lot of people in radio didn't always play his songs because they saw him more as a jazz artist. So um, I was lucky in that respect, but I had to be talked into it because I really thought of it. And I still think of it today as, as George's song, even though... It was written by Michael Masser and Jerry Goffin, who have written many hits for a lot of people. I think the uh, producer of the radio station at the time had felt that uh, since Whitney Houston had recorded George Benson's uh, Greatest Love of All again and had success with that, he thought that I might be able to do the same thing. And both songs were written by Michael Masser. And I love the video for the song. <laughs> um, I think it's like, it's the epitome of 80s power ballad videos. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes. There's sunsets on the beach singing longingly into the distance. Um, I think you ride a horse at one point as well. <laughs> how, how did you find the experience of making your first pop video? You know, I've had the chance now to look back at it after so many years, now 30 years or so. And what I really liked about the video, and it's still my favorite video that I've done, it's because it was very organic. It was, you know, they said, hey, Glenn, we need to do a video. I said, hey, why don't we do it on Kauai where I live? We'll go to my favorite beaches. And we'll just do a really nice video focusing on Hawaii and love, and which was my life at the time. It was very simple on a little island of 50,000 people. 
And and it worked out great. You know, people, although it has the 80s looks, right, with the 80s hair and all of that, um, it, it, I don't remember too many videos taking place on a beach at the time. And so for me, I think that made it unique. And it also made it uh, authentic because that was, you know, that's where I grew up on an island. And of course, Kauai is where they filmed uh, Jurassic Park and those type of films, isn't it? It's like the greenest yes. Hawaiian island <laughs> yes um, i think you, you like really advertise you really sold Kauai, I think, <laughs> that video no you know i have to say for many many years Kauai has been uh an island where movies are made of all the islands here in hawaii and partly it's because Kauai is twice as old as any of the other islands uh on the chain so it's very beautiful lush greenery and that's why they call it the garden island it's very beautiful and yes a lot of movies have been made there over the years you were pretty young when you rose to fame. You know, you were 17, 16, mm-hmm. 17 at the mm-hmm. time. Although I have to say you had a very mature voice for 16, 17. When I think about like <laughs> Justin Bieber's songs when he was 16, 17, he didn't sound like you. Um, <laughs> but how, how did you cope with being a teen heartthrob um, and having that kind of attention so quickly? You know, I, I didn't find that it was something I needed to cope with. I think um, – you have certain expectations as a, as a young kid. You think if you sell records, if the record sounds decent, hopefully it'll become a hit. And if it becomes a hit, people will like it and you'll be adored by various people. And for me, uh, I had a great following of, of especially young... Uh, girls. Mostly <laughs> girls. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it's what you see in the movies and so forth. Uh, but what was different for me is the lifestyle that you don't see in the movies. Uh, it's, it's being in hotels by yourself, you know, traveling from city to city one day, you know, one city a day. And just the whole life that is kind of happens behind the scenes where you're only getting about, you know, four hours of sleep a day because you're waking up every morning doing radio and, and doing magazines and, and television commercials and all kinds of things every day. So uh, once you get started on the grind of being on the road, it's, it's, um, it was overwhelming for me because I came from a very laid back lifestyle on the island of Kauai. Yeah. You, you told the world, I guess, again, it says you, you didn't really enjoy life being on the road. I mean, I guess as a solo artist, it must be quite lonely, right? Cause if you're in a band or in a group, you've got bandmates to kind of yeah, yeah. keep you up and yeah. going and stuff. But when you're on your own, I guess that's kind of lonely. It, it is. It is. Um, especially with me, I'm a very family oriented person and, and had my group of friends, uh, best friends on the island of Kauai, which is why I never really left Kauai until I ended up going to college because I, I always wanted to go back home, be with my friends, be with my family. And I had yearned for that the whole time. And it wasn't that it was horrible. You know, I had great moments where I met incredible people. And I, the traveling itself really opened my mind. I, as an educator today, I can look back and think, you know, there's no better way to get an education than to travel to 40 countries, you know, <laughs> within five or six years and, and, and meet the people that I did. It just, it changed my life. But the lifestyle itself is not one that I enjoyed. When you hear stories that artists have pretty wild times on the road um, with a lot of partying, there must have been a lot of temptation to kind of get up to some shenanigans. Well, you know, I, I, I think I mean, it wasn't perfect. I mean, I had my moments, definitely, but I think... Uh, maybe one of the reasons why I was so bored is, you know, I stayed away from drugs. You know, I, I didn't have the whole, uh, 
you know, how people had their old caravan of people following them. I pretty much kept things simple. Me and my manager traveling on the road. You know, I, I wasn't one to go to parties. Uh, and when it came to fans, usually I didn't really get to know them all that well. And so the people that I did get to know well are, were the ones on the recording labels, the people that that were really good to me because I would, I'm a history buff. So every time I go to a place, I'd say, okay, let's visit this cathedral or let's do, let's visit this museum. And they say, are you crazy? Like normally people are asking us, which nightclub are we going to go to? <laughs> but, but anyway, I mean, it's not like I was a perfect angel. I made mistakes along the way, but I, I think uh, for the most part, uh, it, I, I was different from the norm for, for those at the record label that I worked with. And they enjoyed that. They liked it. So you did a collaboration with Bobby Brown. Yes. She Ain't Worth It, which gave you your first number one in the US. Mm-hmm. But that that was a change from your usual kind of ballady love song type thing. Yes. How did that come about? Well, um, there's a little bit of a story to that, actually, because uh, in 1980 or so, I had signed to MCA Records in the United States and the president that had signed me had left the company and and so I didn't have the support that, that I really wanted. I was looking to do the type of music that I had done in the past, more along the lines of a you know romantic pop singer and I pushed for that but the people at the record label basically had told me, look Glenn, if you, we do that, you're out of a deal. And I had just bought my first home on Kauai. And, and I was in a situation where, even though nothing's going to change my life, you had done very well. The income from that wasn't really happening because I wasn't selling a lot of albums. I was selling more, more singles. And I hadn't really written the songs. So, and I think you'll find with a lot of artists that if they're not writing their songs, the way the music industry is set up, that you have to recoup a lot of money back before you can start making money. And in my case, if you're not selling a lot of albums, then uh, you won't recoup that f- those funds back. So basically, I was in a tough situation financially, and I made the decision to say, "Hey, uh, what would you like me to do?" And and they said, "Well, you know, hip hop is really big right now. I want you to do this. Bobby Brown's on the same label as you are. We we can do something together. We'll support it 100 percent." And and I made the decision to move forward, even though I enjoy listening to R&B. It wasn't something that I, you know, was used to singing or doing. So in my opinion, I'll, you know, I take the blame for that to a certain extent because I did something that wasn't uh, authentic for me. But at the same time, it's music I enjoyed and I looked forward to working with Bobby. And yes, we did end up getting a number one song. So when I look back at it, uh, there's some regret. But at the same time, I also look back at it with some positivity too. So we did end up releasing the song, went to number one in the United States. Although the United States didn't really, wasn't really a major market for me personally. Nothing going to change my life. You had top at about, um, I think, 11 or 12 in the nation. And because it was released on one side of the country first and then the other, first on a small record label and then a major. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other countries in Europe, it had mostly reached number one in most of the countries. So it, it was good for me in some ways in the United States because they, 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 the, they knew the song, but they didn't know who sang it. Whereas mm-hmm. in Europe... Everybody was like, um, oh, what is he doing now? Is he selling out? Is he, is he, you know, does he, does he just care about record sales? Or, and it didn't really do all that well um, in Europe as compared to the United States. So, so, you know, you live and learn. And uh, I, when I look back again, I think 
I, I wish I would have kind of held my ground, but at the same time, who knows? I never, I might never had a chance to record again. So, do you feel like if you'd been older than you were at the time, you would have felt more confident to stand your ground and say, "No, this is what I want to do." I don't know, to be honest. I mean, that's a great question. I, I think when it comes to survival, our survival instinct starts to kick in, no matter what our age is. And for me, I, I needed, I really wanted to continue to to have a home that I just purchased and, and to keep it going. And and when a major recording label says we're going to back you one hundred percent if you do this, it's a very very tough thing to say no to because there's so many artists that want that. I remember an artist and repertoire person at MCA Records once told me he said, you know. We could make a fart a hit if we wanted to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's true. It's true. It's like he said, we'll play it enough times, get enough rotation, and it'll be a hit, you know. Uh, just put a little beat to it. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, but no, I, I think in retrospect, if I could do it again, I would say this. And I say this to my daughter and my son. My, my son's t- almost 21 and my daughter's 20. And, and I tell them, I said, get your education first. Get your education not only so that you're secure in yourself and you have something to fall back on, but it also helps you to be able to take your talents at a young age and find your own sound, find your own uh, style. Because when you're young, you're basically imitating. And even though my voice started mature, as you mentioned, I was still kind of in that imitation mode yet at the time and hadn't really found my voice until I was about 24 or so, 23, Mm -hmm. 24, where... And I felt, okay, this is this is the voice I'm looking for and um, and this is the sound I'm looking for. You, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but no. there was a moment that unfortunately happened on British TV back in 1990, Jukebox Jury, I'm sure you remember, um, where mm-hmm. panellists review songs and they weren't too complimentary about your release at the time um, and they weren't aware that you were backstage mm-hmm. listening to their critique. That must have been really hard to deal with. You know, I, I got to tell you, I don't put a lot of thought into that because in my career, each country had its own uh, record labels, uh, sub- subsidiary. So I was with Polygram Records and a certain country it was Mercury Records, Polydor, whatever, whatever subsidiary it was. And each country was trying to get press. And, and for some people, when She Ain't Worthy came out, I think in the minds of some, they felt, well, maybe bad press is better than no press. And I I hadn't really gotten to the point where I looked up all of the different um, promotions that I was doing and asked them about it. I just, I was into the habit of, hey, you know what, let's go ahead and move forward. I'm sure they have the, my best interest in mind and they'll get me on interviews that help to sell the record. And so I take fault in that, that I was too trusting but uh, basically, you know, they put me in a situation specifically to, you know, to embarrass me. And, and it was tough at the time because I was seeing it happening, you know, as I came in. And, um, and it was specifically meant to, to do, I think, what it did was to not only embarrass me, but to so much so that it would get my name out there so that maybe people would buy records. I don't know what they were thinking. But whatever the case is. It's happened from time to time in certain countries where, where, where the subsidiary record labels took that same approach. And I just kind of like, uh, I, it was hurtful at the time. And then the day later, it was done. It was over. And um, because for me, I never really saw music as my end goal. For me, I knew I wanted to be an educator. 
And I knew that someday I would come back home and I'd go to college and I'd get mm-hmm. an education and I'd do something else. So, and, 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 and I also realized the business of, uh, you know, being in the music industry, I learned a lot about media and media. There's so many choices out there and different, cha- different channels, especially today with the rise of technology that people want to be heard and to be heard. Sometimes it means embarrassing someone or hurting someone in the process. And, and I think yeah, it's, it's unfortunate when that happens. On the other hand, I've had times where people in the media did a great job of painting me in a very positive light, even more positive than it actually was. So I've experienced both sides. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, I don't really think about it all that much. It's happened, though, but not just in England, but it happened in other countries, too. For some reason at the time, if you were a pop singer singing love songs, that was just really not the, wasn't a good thing. It's you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're soft. And in the, in the case of uh, that particular show, them seeing me as kind of like a little bit of a sellout that I'm, that, you know, here's this pop love song singers trying to sing this. I mean, they had a point there. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. I did, I did make the choice that I did. So in some ways, uh, you know, I can see where where they're coming from. But again, I don't really think all that much about that, and it's just part of the job. Well, I'm sorry that that happened to you and you experienced that. Um, but something I'm sure was much more fun. I was reminded the other day when I saw it that you had a cameo in Karate Kid 3. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> what, what were your memories of filming that? Well, it was nice. I, I had the chance to uh, work in Los Angeles and... Paula Abdul was the um, uh, she was a choreographer, so she she would she worked with me. I got to meet with her, and and she asked me. It was right before she became a very popular artist. She she was she was saying, "Hey Glenn, what do you do? Tell me about the music industry." So I talked to her about it, and she was very good to work with on the movie. And uh, next thing you know, she, she became a big star. Um, probably had nothing to do with it, but we spent a lot of time talking about the music industry in general. So hopefully I was able to help her a little bit. Um, getting to meet the cast and seeing the people you know, as they, watching them as they acted was 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 amazing. It was a very, uh, it was something that I look back at with a lot of positivity. And of course, Karate Kid's been having a, a great revival in Cobra Kai on Netflix at the moment. Yes. And they're, they're bringing everyone back to it could we maybe see you in season four singing in a bar <laughs> i don't know you know the three seconds i had on there might not be enough for them to to bring me back but it, it, you know i did feel like you know even though i it's funny even though i was just on there for a few seconds they really tried their best to make me feel like i was part of the family they would have me sit and watch you know um ralph macho do his parts and 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 so it was it was it was good i enjoyed it but no, I don't think they'll be calling me. <laughs> Let's move away now from the nostalgia zone and into what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. One thing that intrigued me about your story is that being a teacher was always your plan and singing was the thing that you did on the way there, as opposed to perhaps the more typical story where, where singing is the dream and teaching is the thing you do on the way there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's totally true. Why, why was that? Well, I, I'm a very, when people get to know me, I'm a very private person. I, I'm not one that likes to be out in crowds. Or, I, I'm a very a person that likes to, I love, I love history, I love music, but I, I'm more, 
of the person who likes to sit back and write music as opposed to perform it on stage. Uh, but for me, I had a great teacher when I was in the third grade that really helped kind of get me out of my shell a little bit and noticed what my strengths were and then created like a platform for me to be able to, to get that out there to others. And then when others appreciated that, I learned to love myself a little bit more. So long story short, I tried to emulate that. That teacher really made an impact in my life. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I also wanted to sing, no doubt about that. But in the end, I knew I was I'm a pretty reasonable person where I know that even if I do reach success, any type of success, it's only going to last a short period of time. I always saw myself as as a teacher and someone that could be an educator. So, so anyway, yes, so when things started slowing down in about 1993, 94, I uh, made the decision to go to college. I mean, something I found interesting was that while you were at college getting your degree, you were still performing at night to pay for it. And yes. I guess you kind of touched upon it a little earlier, talking about, you know, how much money you make as a as a singer as opposed to a songwriter. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was surprised that you hadn't earned enough. I mean, you'd sold like 7 million records at that point, but that wasn't enough to pay for you to put yourself through college. No, no, not at all. Um, the music industry is one where if you think about it, when you're on the road, you have to pay for band members, you have to pay for uh, hotels. And, um, most people don't even break even when they perform. Uh, you have to be uh, either a writer or, or you have to sell a lot of albums, per se, uh, to be able to, to recoup that money. And the record companies have every reason to, to want to have it that way because most records don't make their money back. So they basically say you, most contracts are such that you recoup your money back and then you can start making some money. Um, I was, you know, I, I needed to perform. And so I found a gig here in Hawaii where I could perform at night and then go to school during the day. And it worked out really well. It's, it was a different type of performing. Instead of performing in small stadiums or, or in, for audiences of 10,000 or 5,000, I started performing for, you know, two, three, four, five hundred people. And it was a lot more intimate. And at first it was a bit odd for me, but I actually ended up really liking it. And, and, and there was... I really actually ended up making some very good money in the process. <laughs> so one of the things I tell my attorney uh, here that I continue to work with my musical attorney here in Hawaii is that it's funny. It's it's kind of sad in some ways, but I ended up making more money coming back playing, you know, just in Hawaii than I did touring the world. Um, and it is not unusual. It's it if I when you speak to a lot of artists. That is the case, but the problem is in the media, we tend to focus, and not a problem per se, but in the media, we tend to focus on the Elton Johns of the world or, you know, the Michael Jacksons, the ones that sell millions of albums. But mm -hmm. when you talk to some of the people that have had maybe one or two hits and you get to know them a little bit, you realize, I mean, a lot of times the story is, oh, they took drugs, they wasted it all. Or, but, but in reality, it's very, very easy to spend more money than you're making in the music industry. So tell me, what was more nerve-wracking, performing for 10,000 people in a stadium or your first day teaching at school? Performing for 10,000 people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's what... Kids can be pretty scary. They take no prisoners. No, no. See, I, I think what, what makes teaching more challenging in some ways is that when you're performing, you're performing for an audience you see once and you can... 
you know, they'll believe anything you say. You can take them through a journey, whatever journey you want on stage. When you're teaching, that works for like about three, four days. And then they keep seeing you day after day. And, and the students will see your flaws. They'll know if you're not planning things well. They'll know if you're not putting the proper time into it. They know if you, you don't know your stuff. And, and so when you teach, it really helps you. It helped me in particular to develop as a person. And I think if we talk about you know, disadvantages, I think it's when you take a look at a lot of the young stars, people that started very young like I did, uh, 16, 17, you'll, you'll notice a pattern that a lot of them will start off, you know, kind of clean cut. And next thing you know, they're doing drugs, they're, they're, their lives are getting ruined. And I think I, I hadn't prepared myself, I think, for the music industry in such a way that I was very detail oriented. I needed to be more detail oriented. Teaching helped me to become detail oriented because when, when you're not prepared, um, it can hurt you. Whereas in the music industry, I know a lot of guys that they don't rehearse. They're just so talented. They get up on stage, they do their thing. And they're not putting a lot of work into it, but they're just really talented. And for me, music was always kind of that. I, I'm, I can pick up a piano. I mean, I can get to a piano and without lessons, I could play it. You know, I can pick up any instrument and start to play it. I can write songs, I can do different things. It was never hard for me, so I didn't have to work at it. But when it came to teaching, I needed to, I needed to work at it and be detail oriented and be prepared to be good at it. And and then it helped me. Even it helped me on the musical side too because it ended up transferring over to that. I know you taught history mm-hmm. and music, and then you got your PhD in educational leadership in 2014. What fueled your desire to keep learning? Uh, I, I'm a learner. I love to learn. To be honest with you. I, I love it. Uh, it's, I'm, it could be the traveling that I did really sparked my interest further, but I've always been interested in history. My father uh, was a tour guide on, on Kauai, and he had his history books all over the place, and I'd read them. But uh, I, I'm a person that loves learning. I continue to take every opportunity I can to, to be able to learn more. I was recently, a couple years ago in the summer, I attended a, a professional development um, well, it was part of a professional development opportunity at Oxford University, and that was great. And stayed there for uh, a couple of weeks. And recently, I've um, been taking courses at Harvard University and Cornell in, in the United States. And I just, I just want to keep learning, keep not only becoming a better educator, but also a better leader, a better person. And obviously, you climb the ranks from being a teacher to a principal to a dean, and now you're the president of St. Louis School. I mean, we just have headmasters in the UK or, yeah. or principals at, at the top of the food chain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, do you, what do you do in your capacity as president, and why did you decide to move away from the day-to-day teaching into administration? Well, I started seeing that I could make more of an impact if I were to become an administrator. So I started teaching different grade levels, which it's on uh, elementary school, middle, and high school, knowing that I wanted to be in a position where I could at least relate to the teachers and then I moved my way up, you know, from dean to vice, pre- uh, vice principal, principal, and then to um, to president. Uh, for me, the role, most people know what a principal does. A principal basically takes care of the academics at school. They make sure that students are behaving well. And, and if they're not, then they provide consequences. And 
the uh, president role is one step a little higher, which which basically I, I'm the person that raises money for the school. Uh, I'm the person that uh, is in charge of the marketing of the school. I'm the person that is in charge, you know, of an, not a uh, of a of a you know fourteen million dollar budget and and over uh, you know about one hundred twenty workers. So it's it's a little bit more business centered, but at the same time, because of my background in academics, I do make it a point to continually work with the principal on academics. So, but it's a great job. I love it. Uh, I love working at the school that I'm at. And uh, in England, uh, I think my job would be most uh, presidents of school call themselves head of school or headmaster. And uh, there are some schools where uh, headmaster is a dual role of principal and president. And so, uh, and I did that for one year. It was a lot of work, but but now I'm just focusing <laughs> on being president. <laughs> What's it like being the one that dishes out the punishment, like the detentions type thing? You know what? Uh, it's it's. I've never been a dean of students. That's what we call it here in the United States. A dean of students does that. Um, so I kind of bypass that. But it, the very kind of big scenarios, the big cases will come to the principal and then, and that's always tough. But, uh, and then if it's really big cases at here at this school that I'm working at, then the parents have a chance to appeal with the president. And so I do I mean, have about two or three appeals per year that I'm involved in. And it's, it's always tough because the last thing you want to do is, is, you know, kick a kid out of school. And then we, we're here to help children. And, but sometimes we have to make the tough decisions that's better, you know, for the whole as opposed to the individual, so. Mm. But uh, it's, it's okay. I mean, the one good thing about the music industry is that it kind of toughened me up a little bit. So doing what I need to do on the educational side, it's, it's not so bad. I was looking at your school on your school's website and it looks amazing. Oh, I mean, you've, got you. a, you've got a theatre, you've got a robotics lab, an army instructor. <laughs> I mean, it's been a while since I was at school, but it's like the school of the future for me. Oh, like, you. We, didn't have, we didn't have any of that stuff. Um, but how have you been coping during the pandemic? I suppose you've had to be doing, everyone's doing homeschooling or yeah. are they still in school? Well, we were anticipating that we might potentially lose between 10 to 40% of our students Luckily for us, what ended up happening is that uh, the public schools ended up moving online. And because we had taken the approach that at least for our elementary, we keep it open and then um, and then provide parents the choice to stay to come to school uh, for middle school and high school. uh, We actually grew in enrollment, which was amazing. Uh, We 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 have been working very hard to keep it as keep things as safe as possible. Oh, you know, we're watching the television, reading things every day, looking at the protocols on a national level, state level. And and so we've worked very hard. And so far we've been successful in keeping um, COVID off campus, at least to a point where it's spreading. So we haven't had spread knock on wood uh, here on campus. But but uh, it's, been a, it's been a great experience for us because there wasn't really a roadmap as to how to deal with this. We just put our heads together and said, let's work through this. And and I have a great team of people around me. And so I'm, I'm very blessed in that respect. How do your students react to having you as their president in terms of being this 80s teen heartthrob? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I remember when I first started teaching, when I was about 24, some of the high school girls would be like, oh, wow, cool, you know, singer. <laughs> and then after about... Um, after about five years, all of a sudden, it was the moms. Hey, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Now it's turning into grandmother, so I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> you, have, um, you, <laughs> you have two children as well. Yes. You mentioned them before. They have very musical names. Yes. I love that. Lyric and chord. Yes, yes. And that was uh, my wife's doing. I can't take credit for that, but but yes, and they haven't been teased for that. I'm, you know, they're they're just doing fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> and Cord was actually a pupil at your school too. Yes, he graduated from St. Louis School, and he's studying engineering now at the University of Hawaii. He's in his third year, and he's doing really well. So, I'm very proud of him. I have to ask about um, graduation because I've seen way too many US teen movies where graduations are all cap and gowns and I but I saw some pictures of no. Lyric and Cord's graduations which look a little bit different I presume it's a Hawaiian tradition but they were like wearing a million flower lays packets of M&Ms yes I think Lyric was wearing an, an inflatable flamingo yes. tell, tell me a bit about about that well you, you know it's it's you, you bring up something that's very um dear to my heart and being born and raised in Hawaii there are a lot of Hawaiian culture embedded into everything that we do so um, you know, uh, St. Louis School, the school that I work at, started in 1846. So it's one of the oldest schools west of the Mississippi in the United States. Um, the, uh, my daughter attended the same school that Barack Obama um, uh, attended. It's a very renowned, well-renowned school that started actually in 1841. So it's the only school older than we are uh, on Oahu. And uh, so both are very traditional in nature. So uh, in, in our particular case, our, our tradition is to actually wear a suit and tie and, and uh, really a tux, more like a tux, a white tux. Mm -hmm. And then instead of having the cap and then, and then turning you know, tassel one way, we, we actually just take the lay that they have on and they turn the, turn the lay. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting thing. And my daughter wore uh, a traditional mu a Hawaiian dress and uh, had the same thing going with the lei. And um, both schools have, are very rich in tradition. That's one of the reasons why uh, I had my daughter uh, attend Punahou School. And for her, it's worked out great. She's, she's now at Notre Dame University, and she's, she would like to be an attorney uh, someday. So she's working on that. And, um, and so I'm really proud of my two kids. So the, the inflatable flamingos and bags of M&Ms and stuff, yes. is that just stuff that your friends put on uh, you then? You know what? So, yeah. So let me get to that. Okay, so... Uh, I can remember when I graduated from Kauai High School in Kauai, I remember having so many lays on me, you know, that I couldn't really see. So you have to kind of take some of them off. Yeah, I mean, I saw Lyric's picture. It was like, basically, they had gone all the way up to her nose. And you could just see her eyes right, peeking right. out the top. And then the family started to And what we typically do is people give each other lays. And then I don't know how long this has been taken on. But yeah, you see all the inflatable stuff happening. And I, I guess maybe they feel like, you know what, if you're going to be full of lays, then we'll give you something else to put on around your waist. I don't know. But <laughs> but the tradition here in Hawaii, which is very special, is that we take the lays. And after um, most people, once the lays are given, and we have all these flowers and lays, so families will go to the to the graveyards. And then they'll put the lays on and on the graves of the grandparents and in, in some way to symbolize, you know, thank you if it were not for you. You know, we wouldn't have made it this far. So, and, and for me, it's very special in particular because most of the people in Hawaii who live here are not actually Native Hawaiian. Most people come from another country. My family came uh, from Portugal in the late 1880s. Uh, actually, it was 1878 that they came. And, uh, and my family came from both the Azores and Madeira Islands. 
And because those particular two islands were islands where they grew sugarcane and, and the people were very poor, so they were looking for a better life. So, so for us, we take those lays and we thank our ancestors for, to, for making the trek all the way around the world. Many of the, at the time took about three months to get to Hawaii and many mm. people passed away on the way here. So that's one of the things I love about Hawaii. There's a lot of tradition and history. And one of the things I loved about traveling to Europe and other parts of the world. That's lovely. Uh, you mentioned um, lyrics at, uh, at university and she wants to be a, an attorney. Mm-hmm. But I know that she, um, she she tried out for American Idol and she got to Hollywood Week and has done some talent shows locally as well. Are, are you like steering her away from the music <laughs> industry because of your experiences? Well, she, you know, she looks at the videos that I've made and different things and she'll say, hey, dad, that's really cool. I want to do the same thing. And I, and I tell her, I said, you know, I want you to get your, your degree first. And then once you get your degree, you know, go ahead and try. I'll support you. I'll, you know, any contacts that I still have, I'll connect you with. Um, but I do worry about her uh, because, you know, to be honest, I'm actually almost done writing a book about my experience in life and, and especially in the music industry. And so I've had a chance to really reflect on it. But, there, you know, you hear things about the Me Too movement and uh, that was such the norm when I was in the music industry. And, and, and it was crazy and it was sad. But we all saw each other. We, people were doing what they needed to do to get on top. And it was, it was crazy. And I just, even though today it's out there and people, I think, thank God for technology and phones and cameras everywhere, people are, will be less likely to do those kind of things. But unfortunately, most of the females and some of the males that I met it literally took them having to have relationships with others to to be able to to get to the top. And I really didn't want, um, you know, Lyric to be a part of that. And I know that sounds extremely cynical, but I'm just being honest. That's what it was like. And I'd even mm-hmm. talk to the artist about it, and they say, hey, you know what, I got to do what I have to do. And, and um for me, I never took that approach. And when it came to that, I didn't, I did budge when it came to the type of music that I did um, and I had many offers to on the on the physical side to uh, to have relationships with people but really? I, I, but I never took it no 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 I never did in, in that respect and and that's one thing I can look back on and you know be proud of but yeah it's it's definitely out there do you think that had your desire for like your dream to be a teacher and your very strong family upbringing kind of steered you away from that then if you had you know didn't kind of have those other dreams or desires or if you know you may maybe have felt more pressured into doing something you didn't want to do just to get ahead I think you're 100% right I, I think it was that that kind of kept me from um you know taking that step I always knew that I had my family back home. I knew that I wanted to have family. And again, I, I will make it perfectly clear, I was no angel, I made mistakes. But when it came to specifically, you know, I had friends specifically said, I'm going to be moving in with this person because this person is going to be helping me, you know, with my recording career. That was just, the, I mean, you saw it everywhere. And I just, I never done it. And, uh, um, and I do feel proud of that, but at the same time, I can understand why some of the people did. I mean, I remember talking to some of my friends and they say, you know, the person's attractive. I like them anyway. So, you know, it's, it's okay. But, but, um, 
But uh, I just don't want my daughter to have to experience that. The other thing, too, is the music industry is very, um, it's written with a lot of um, drugs. And, and the mafia is very much a part of the music industry. And a lot of people don't like to talk about that, but, but it's out there. I used to think that a lot of the artists out there used to make their money from the records, but I ended up finding out that they were making money selling drugs wherever they went. Or, um, or they were making, they were owned, you know, quote unquote owned by, you know, mafia types that, um, that paid for everything, you know, paid for the house, paid for the car, paid for everything, but literally owned them. So they were basically being kind of pimped out for lack of a better term. So I don't know why more people don't talk about it, to be honest. Um, I guess I'm out of the industry now, so I can just clearly say, hey, this is what I saw. Um, to me, all of those things, the, between the drugs, the pimping out of artists and, and also the, the, the sexual relations that were happening, it, it was just, I mean, it was the music industry that, that I saw. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you don't have to name names, but some of the people who had approached you for sex back in mm-hmm. the day, are they, to your knowledge, are they still working in the music industry now? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, 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 and happens with other people. And I would never, ever mention their names. I, I can't. I, I just, and the reason some people would say, oh, you know, you're gutless for not doing that. But I think for me, I wouldn't mention it because I still think I had a choice. I had a choice and every person, they have a choice. Um, yes, I made a choice to record R&B music because I wanted to make a living as an artist and continue to keep making the payments on my home that I just bought, you know. But as far as getting, you know, having a relationship with someone to, to make that happen, I, I had a choice. And, you know, I remember once I, there was one particular writer, he'd sold millions of records as, as a writer. And I, I remember going to his home at Beverly Hills and, and I remember him saying, you know, uh, Glenn, I just want to let you know, you see all of these hits that I've had on the wall. Um, the, the, all these great artists, you're better than all of them. And I thought, oh, that's odd because I don't think I'm even close, <laughs> you know, when it comes to the, my ability. But uh, and the next thing you know, he's, he, he, he signs one of my albums and says, uh, you know, you're the greatest singer ever to live. And I thought, wow. And, and, then, and then he says, oh, I, ha- I need to get something. He goes back to another room, comes back in a, like a robe. <laughs> and, and clearly kind of, uh, kind of implying that, that you, you kind of knew what the next moves were going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember saying, oh, my God, I forgot I have an appointment. I have to be, <laughs> I have to be going. <laughs> and, and I made the choice. And... Um, would it have led had led to me uh, being more successful in my career potentially, but I wasn't willing to you know, to do that. So, and how, so how were you like 17, 18 at the time? Seventeen. That particular incident, uh, in that particular case, right about eighteen. Yeah. Wow. So it's um, again though I had a choice, and I think the artists people out there have a choice and and. And it's important to make the right choice in that case. I remember, I remember working with some of the producers uh, uh, in the music industry, and I remember going to dinner, and I would hear uh, the person. I'd be having dinner with the record executive, and the record executive would say, "Hey, Glenn, you know we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, create all these things." Gets a phone call, and it's and he says, "Hey, 
Uh, it's his wife. Oh, hi, honey. Please say good, you know, good night to the kids. I love you. Da, 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 da. Hangs up the phone. Five minutes later, hey, baby, I'll meet you outside. Uh, you know, and that was, mm-hmm. I saw that every day. Uh, not every day, but you'd see it. It was common to see that kind of thing happen. So the music industry is really, in my opinion, there have been artists that have been able to steer away from that and have success and have done it in a way that, you know, they, they respected themselves. And I have a lot of respect for those people. So not everyone has fallen victim to that, but I, I do know it's the norm. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but but thank you for being so brave and sharing your story with me. I yes. appreciate that. Yes. Um, I never like to end on a sombre note, so I usually finish on something a bit cheery. And I appreciate this is going to seem completely trivial compared to what oh. we've just been talking about, but... I know that you're a keen tennis player and you compete in national championships as well. So if you could spend an afternoon playing tennis with one pro, who would it be? Oh, that's, oh my. Ah, gosh. I would say, I think Serena Williams. I would choose her. Uh, I, I, I'd i be very scared <laughs> Do you think I, you'd return? I don't think, no, 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 no. I said, you got to take it easy on me. Uh, maybe tie one hand behind your back. I don't know. Whatever you got to do. <laughs> Blindfold. <laughs> on one leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, there's so many tennis players that I, I, I look I look up to. Um, for some reason, I've always loved playing tennis. I, I don't know what it is. And I, I didn't pick it up until I was about 22 and and although it sounds great, yes, I was in a champion, you know, in the national championship, uh, but it was part of a um, a group of a team of people, and I represented the state of Hawaii, it, and we weren't at a very high level of of playing, you know, they have different levels. So um, I'm a bit of a realist. I know that I'm an okay tennis player, but I do like to compete, and uh, and in that particular case, we made it to the nationals, so we had a lot of fun. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me, Glenn. I know you've got a a busy school to run, so I'll let you go. Um, But best of luck to you and your students for this year. Um, Mahalo. Thank you. Mahalo nuloa. again to Glenn for speaking to me super early from school and for being so open and honest about his experiences which I'm sure was hard to do. As ever I hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show you can visit celebritycatchup.com to find out how you can donate and how to get in touch if you'd like to say hello and you can even leave me a voicemail message just hit the microphone button at the bottom of the page. And why not share this podcast with a friend or on social media so that others can enjoy a bit of 80s nostalgia too. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listening.